my bounds, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. To God who owns everything and owes nothing. We as believers who own nothing and owe everything must render to him in the spirit of Christ thanksgiving for all of his benefits. To God who owns everything and owes nothing, we as believers who own nothing and know everything must render to God in the spirit of Christ thanksgiving for all of his benefits. If that sounds biblically right and theologically responsible, I want you to say that with me like you really mean it. Now, if, if it's suspect and um, maybe with a tinge of heresy in it, Forever hold your peace. Say this with me. To God, who owns everything and owes nothing, we as believers who own nothing and owe everything must render unto Him thanksgiving for all of His benefits. What happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object. Oh, let me put it this way. What happens when a spear that is irresistible is thrown at a shield that is impenetrable? In the world of physics, it's an impossibility. Because if you throw a spear that's irresistible at a shield, that shield must be Penetrable. But if the shield is impenetrable, then the spear that you throw at it cannot be irresistible. It's an impossibility. And what this psalmist is doing is asking us a rhetorical question, and the answer is already assumed. It's an impossibility. God back with? The answer? Nothing. Because God who owns everything and owes nothing, we who 
owe nothing and owe everything was rendered to him in the spirit of Christ, thanksgiving for all of his benefits. This psalmist gives us a vast, infinite picture of God to show us that as puny as we are when we think we are great, there is nothing that we can do for God or give God to pay him back for all that he's done for us. Psalm tell us this all across its breath. But in Romans chapter 1, chapter 11, verse 33, what Paul has done from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up to chapter 11, verse 32, is pile up prodigious large mountains of doctrine, creation, redemption, justification, sanctification, glorification, the doctrine of the Spirit. Relationship, the doctrine of reconciliation. And then when he gets to verse 33, all he can do after he has run out hermeneutically trying to explain this is just say, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. And his ways are past finding out. They're unsearchable. Who has known the mind of God? And who has been his counselor? Do you know anyone that God has made an appointment with and laid on that psychologist's couch to receive counsel? And then who? has given God anything to make him an, a, a debtor so that God has to make installment payments to repay the debt. For from him and for him and through him and to him be all things forever and ever. No, there is nothing that we can do to pay God back because we own nothing and owe everything. And then Paul takes us to the platform of that absurdity in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 25 and 27 particularly. But listen to what he says. He says, the foolishness of God is greater than the wisdom of man. That God is wiser in his foolishness that we are in our wisdom. Name the great thinkers. Emmanuel Cox. Albert Einstein. Name them, name them. As great as they are. In God's lowest level of foolishness, he's greater than their wisdom. And then he says, the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of humans. And we see that particularly at Calvary. God, we, we would like to talk about his, his omnipotence. That is, he has all power. And he does. But look at him when he's impotent. At his weakest. Can't even carry the wood that he made, the cross. Weak. Has shed blood. Weak. Has lost water. Weak. 
feeling his side. And yet, as weak as he was on Friday, watching on Sunday morning, he gets up from the grave with all power in his hand and asks, Oh, death, where is your sin? Oh, grave, where is your victory? And it takes us lose us, 1 Corinthians 4 and 7, Paul does. And helps us to see the obvious. What do you have that you have not received? And if you don't have anything that you uh, have not received, then why are you boasting? In other words, what do you have that was not given to you? Name it. The house. The cattle of a thousand hills belong to him. The wood. Everything. And then he moves us to Psalm 50 verse 12. This is where we must go. That's a ridiculous. And God says, if I was hungry, <laughs> I wouldn't tell you. Because if God got hungry, we're all in trouble. He feeds the sparrows. He feeds the water bugs that we don't like. The ants. And then he moves to Psalm 150, verse 6. And ends with this note. That everything that hath breath Praise the Lord. You don't even have breath. Do you know any company that's making breath? Which means that every breath I breathe is borrowed. God gives it to me. I may exhale, but I'll never inhale unless he gives me another breath. So, God owns everything and owes nothing. We who own nothing and owe everything must render unto him in the spirit of Christ. Thanksgiving for all of his benefits. You know what it's like to own something. Call it that. You buy a car. There's a principal payment. There's an interest payment. And you pay on both of them simultaneously. And if you want to pay the note off quickly, increase your principal payment. But when it comes to God, you can't ever pay your note off. When upon life builds your tempest tossed, when you feel the service thinking all is lost, count your blessings. Name them one by one. And it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your blessings. See what God has done. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has done. When waves of affliction sweep over the soul and sunlight is hidden from view, whenever you're tempted to fret or complain, just think of his goodness to you. Just think of his goodness to you. Just think of his goodness to you. Those storms on me sweep, he is able to keep. Just think of his goodness to you. If I can get beyond what I've lost and concentrate on what God has left me with, if I could just thank God for what he's given to me, then fretting and complaining will greatly diminish. If you and I could pay God back for all of his benefits. How much would be too much? 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 How much
my treaty would be too much. It seems like a ridiculous question, but the way we live and treat God makes it a very viable question. Back in 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 28 particularly, Jeroboam, of course, is the king of the northern kingdom, and Rehoboam is the king of the southern kingdom. One tribe, the other ten tribes, of course, Benjamin is added to that, which makes two. And he's concerned about uh, the folk in Rehoboam's territory. Rehoboam is the son of Solomon, who has died. He's just concerned about them going to Jerusalem. All Jews had to go to Jerusalem for the three annual feasts. Hmm. He's concerned about the people in his group going to Jerusalem to worship there and eventually coming underneath the headship of Rehoboam. So he makes, he makes it convenient. He builds a shrine up north in Dan and down south in Bethel and says to them, it's too much for you to go all the way down to Jerusalem. You go up, up, up north here in Dan or go down to Bethel. Uh, go down to Bethel because it's too much. How much is too much to give back to God what it's already God's? Are you here at Calvary in Mark chapter 10? Now, I know, I know you're wondering about the text. Where are you going to get to the text? I'm in the suburb of the text. I'm here. I'm coming downtown. I'm coming downtown. Just let me stay on 275 a little bit. I'm getting there. I'm getting there. But in Mark chapter 10, verses number 21 and following, 22, here's this rich ruler. We say he's young. Rich, young ruler. And he wants to know what he has to do to inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus says, keep the commandments. I've done those since I was a young person. Then Jesus gets to the very heart of the matter. Because the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And says to him, sell all you have and give to the poor. Then take up your cross and then follow me. Jesus is not against riches, against nice things. As long as you have riches and nice things, and nice things and riches don't have you. And they become your idol. And you forget where all your blessings have come from. And the Bible says, when Jesus told him to give all that he had to the poor, take up his cross and follow him, that the man left Jesus sorrowfully. You cannot walk away from Jesus joyfully because Jesus is joy. And you can't walk away from joy joyfully. He walked away sorrowfully. Why? Because he had many riches. It was too much for him to give. But it's never too much for our God to give to us. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, heaven was bankrupt. He gave the crown jewel of heaven. And Jesus, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, let this man be in, let, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but condescended, emptied himself, took on the form of a man, became a servant, and was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
And God has highly exalted him and given him a name of, which is of everything. He emptied himself for us. And when I think of God's son, he not sparing, gave him to die, I scarce can take it in. When on the cross, my burdens gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Nothing is too much when it comes to you for God. Is it too much for me to be a responsible tither and giver? Or does God just get my leftovers? After I have paid everyone else, do I give God my fragments? Is it too much for me to live an ethical life that brings honor to God because I realize that I am to be unique. I'm to be light in the midst of darkness. And I'm to be salt while everything is rottening. Is it too much for me to worship God with all my heart and to refuse to be a spectator in worship, but to be a participator in worship. Because I don't want the ensemble to worship for me. I've come here to worship together with them. Is it too much? And for God, it is not too much. Now, I'm downtown Main Street in the text. I can't treat 19 verses. I know my time says I'm 2051. That means I've got about 15 minutes. This song, verses 1 through 4, is a song that dedicates itself to hearing. Hearing. Look at verse 1. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice, my supplication. God is a hearing God. Not just one who listens to our voices, but he hears us first of all from our heart. Our groans, our moans. When I grew up as a little boy at the Rose Chapel Baptist Church years ago. I'm 74 now. And I used to hear the elders, men and the women, and they'd get up and sing, and they would say sometimes, they'd start moaning. And they said, the reason why we moan is the devil doesn't know what we're talking about. God understands moans. Hmm. He doesn't have to take out a dictionary because you're a multisyllabic person. He understands inarticulate moans and grunts and groans. And sometimes you can't find the words. You just, mm. and God understands. Mm. I am so glad that God hears. Back in Genesis 16, here is Hagar who is being 
hmm, evacuated literally from the home of Sarah, well, Sarai and Abram. They don't have their covenantal names yet. And she's tossed out and there she is out in the wilderness. She's going to die, she and her son Ishmael. But God hears her. And there is given to her water so that she can survive. Ishmael sounds like the word here in Hebrew. God hears. And I want everyone to know, God is not some kind of God who is, let me put it this way. Some people say we live in a godless world or worldless God. That is a worldless God or godless world. There's a ceiling. You can't say anything to God and God won't say anything to you. It's theism. God has made a clock, thrown it out and said, you manage your life. You manage time. There is no relationship between divinity and humanity. I can't handle a God like that. I need a God that hears. Hears my tears. So he says, I love the Lord because he has heard. I have a personal relationship. And he knows me before he hears me. Psalm 139 and 2. He knows my thoughts are far off so that before I get the thought, he abducts and kidnaps the thought before I even get it. I love the Lord. He's heard me. He has heard me. Verses 5 through 7. He is a merciful God. What's the text talks about? Him being merciful. Here the psalmist David who has committed adultery and sin. Psalm 51 verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your tender mercies. Brought out my transgressions. He asked for mercy. Mercy is God preventing you from getting what you deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. Now here is grace. You don't deserve this, but God wants to give it to you. And here's judgment. You deserve this, and you're supposed to get it. And mercy steps in between. Judgment blocks judgment so that you can get grace. How does that happen? Jesus takes our sin upon himself because God must be just. But what we should get, he gets. He who knew no sin became sin that we who are sinners might be made the righteousness of God. He who was rich became poor, that we who are poor might be rich. It's always that wonderful, redemptive exchange. He has given us mercy. And every one of us who is sitting here right now know that there were things that should have happened to us because of what we've done and when justice, judgment, judgment wanted to come right in and 
cut us down. Mercy blocked it. What, your, your agility? What that? What your goodness? It wasn't luck. It wasn't a rabbit's foot. If the rabbit was so lucky that he would have his foot, what that? But it was mercy. Mercy kept us. Verses eight through eleven. Verse eight. He has delivered me from death. My eyes from weeping. My feet from stumbling. All of us on the way to the grave, unless the rapture comes. And I think heaven will roll back the curtains and let us see how close to death we were. And God kept us. Dangers that were unseen. He delivered you from death. I know what it's like to hear the diagnosis of cancer Three times. Stroke twice. I know what it's like. Some of you have lived uh, with the reality of your mortality. You got this close to death. You don't have to be old for that to happen. That close. All right, so whatever it is. And somehow or another, as David says, there's one step between me and death. And what happened was God got between you and death. Stepped in. And kept you. He's delivered me from weeping. I mean, incessant weeping. Hmm? Non stop Just stops it. Oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't mean you won't cry again. There's an old RB song I heard someone sing. I cried my last cry yesterday. That ain't true. You're going to cry some more. But God has a way of drying up your tears and letting you go on and continue your journey until the next time you have teardrops. And then it enables you to go on by wiping those tears away. Until finally one of these days, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. He's delivered my feet from stumbling. Now to him who's able to keep you from falling, as Jude would say in Jude 24. This idea that when I would stumble and fall, he catches me. He keeps me from falling. Terminal falls. Relational falls. Physiological falls. Help me, help me, help me. And then the psalmist goes on and talks about what our response ought to be in verses 12 through 17, verse number 13. I will... Lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. In Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 to 9, there are various cups during the Exodus. This is preparing for the Exodus. But during the Exodus, uh, when they would have the Passover meal, they hold up various cups. God says to uh, Moses, and Moses says to the people, God says, I will deliver them from the bondage of Egypt. God did. I will bring them to the promised land. God did. I will be their God and they will be my people. God was. So in Matthew 26, 
verse 29, Jesus at the Lord's Supper says, I will not drink this cup with you until I do it in my Father's kingdom. He's talking about the fourth cup, the fourth, the fourth cup. That's going to be mm, participated and he will drink of it in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But until then, we have a cup. I will take the cup of salvation and I'll call on the name of the Lord. The greatest blessing that you and I have, which we underemphasize, is the cup of salvation. Cup of salvation. I don't care what you have. If you got 10 figures behind your name and your bank account, that, that doesn't compare. If you are physically fit and you're beautiful, so beautiful that you can look in the mirror and get high. That kind of thing. Keep living. Anything else. But the fact that you've been saved, that's an eternal blessing. Nothing can take that away. He has you in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. Take the cup of salvation. Thank God for miracles. Thank God for healing. Thank God for financial advancement. Thank God for this and this, this. But what you and I ought to always remember is, God, I thank you for salvation. Because everything else is going to stay in this world. But salvation is an eternal matter. And then he moves on to verse number 17. He says, I will offer unto the Lord mm, sacrifice of praise. That's my res responsibility. I can't pay him back for anything, but I sure can praise him. Sacrifice of praise. Sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will pay my vows where? In the midst of your people. Where? In the courts of what? The house of God, which is where? In Jerusalem. Now, I know COVID has, um, has done a job on us. I understand that. And we have really emerged from it with some wonderful things. One of the things, one of the things is technology. And we can virtually go to church. Watch them. TV. Live stream, whatever that is, people tell me about that, but that's it. That's it. What it has done for some, listen to me now. I think that, and, and believe me, I think that live stream is a blessing. I think that technology is a tremendous one. It belongs to God and He's using it. But hear me well. Live stream ought to be. A luxury, not a necessity. A luxury for people who can't come to church, but not a necessity for those who can. Whatever happened to Psalm 122, verse 1? I was glad when they said unto me, come, let us go into the house of the Lord. Whatever happened to Hebrews 10, 25? Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is. It's time to come back to church. Why? Why? I'm talking about for those who can. Why? Because some things can't be experienced 
live stream like they can be in here. You can take and study geological rocks, mountains, in labs, table, charts, and all of that. But it's different when you climb the apps and smell the air. another thing being right there with your wife it's one thing it's one thing going down to the great American ballpark and watching the game versus watching on television and drinking your lemonade etc it's a different feeling bow down at the altar with other people. I'm not saying that God is not there or here. I'm saying that there's something about congregating together whereas we used to say it goes from heart to heart and from breast to breast. And this psalmist says I'm going to pay my vows in the midst of your people in the courts of your temple in the city of Jerusalem all you know when we are there around the throne of God there won't be live stream we'll be gathered together mm, praising my savior all the day long I think and I will hurry here think I have a little grace I hope I do but I think Hezekiah would, would be a responsible person in first and second Kings chapter 20, you know, he has been given a, a, um, an announcement by Isaiah, his best friend. God says, you're going to die and not live. And he turns his face to the wall and he weeps. And he tells God that he's been faithful to his covenant and lived according to his will. And before Hezekiah could get out of the courtyard, God said to Hezekiah, go back and tell Isaiah this. I've heard his prayers. I've seen his tears. I'm going to heal him. And on the third day, he's going back to the house of God. To the house of God. This won't be a private matter. To the house of God. And then I'm going to give him 15 more years to live. There's something about being in the presence of the Lord in the midst of his people. I leave you with this. To God who owns everything and owes nothing, we who are believers who own nothing and owe everything must render unto him in the spirit of Christ thanksgiving for all of his benefits. I can't pay him back, but what can I do? Andre Crouch, in his tribute, asked the question, how shall I give thanks for the things you have done for me, things so deserved, and yet you gave to prove your love for me. The voices of a million angels cannot express 
my gratitude. All that I am or ever hope to be, I owe it all to thee, to God. Be the glory to God. Be the glory to God. Be the glory. Great things he has done. With his blood he has saved me. With his power he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. Just let me live my life. May it be pleasing, Lord, to thee. And if I should gain any praise, let it go to Calvary. With his blood, he has saved me. With his power, he has raised me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. What things? He died. What things? He went into the grave. What things? He stayed there for three days. What things? He rose back from the dead with all power in his hand. What things? He sent his Holy Spirit to live in me. What things? He's coming back again for me. To God be the glory for the things he has done. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.